brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrip.com, on time, on target. I'm very excited to have Mike Vining back on, and pretty much ever since we had him on last time, I've gotten tons of uh, comments and emails of when is part two, and the cool thing was we just had this um, team meeting for the first half of the year uh, with Hurricane Media, and the, the one thing that I mentioned was that first video I put up of Mike Vining, one of the things I spoke about um, with the audio excerpt, was that thing got 20,000 listens in a matter of like a couple of days, uh, which is pretty big for our Instagram account since SoftRep Radio's one SoftRep Radio account is relatively new, like didn't boost the post or anything. And I think it's because people have never heard from this man before other than our yeah. interview. And I'm super glad that, you know, it's getting that kind of attention that people listen to the interview that we did with him because... He just did some incredible things. I mean, he was he was a party to history, really, yeah. in, in so many ways. And, you know, I, I should have known, but I, I didn't really consider it at the time that we wouldn't be able to get it all in in one podcast. So we, you know, decided to split it up. I think we left off around um, the invasion of Grenada, and uh, he's telling us a little bit about that. So we'll pick up sort of with the aftermath of, uh, of Urgent Fury, Operation Urgent Fury, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, and one thing you can't know until you actually are on the line with someone is he truly is a great storyteller. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's got a gift at that. Yeah. And he has so many amazing stories to tell. So, I mean, he's definitely Mike Vining is the type of person you could sit down and, and just listen to him talk and learn a lot in the process. Yeah. I, I loved um, having this meeting with our team. One thing I didn't even realize was that, um, you know, and I'll get to it in an email, but like soft rep, if you're a um, team room member, you'll now get access to the Spec Ops channel, right? which is great. So there's incentives to join that. Um, but everybody in our team, like, just great, positive people, um, a lot of awesome things we discussed for the future, and, uh, yeah, had a great time. I, I, um, I was going to mention Chris, our web guy. I got into, like, a discussion with him about Duterte because he's from the Philippines. Yeah. So it's interesting hearing that perspective from a guy who votes there and lives in the country and, and how he said, like, the perception of Duterte among him, his friends, the voters, is is relatively positive, regardless of what yep. the media says. Well, the, a lot of people in the Philippines have been suffering under... Uh, uh, they've been suffering from poverty, but also um, from corruption within their government and crime. And Duterte is the, you know, tough-on-crime guy <laughs> with yeah. extrajudicial killings and all this other yep. stuff. 
Um, so I, the, the ordinary, you know, normal, uh, people of the Philippines, they feel that crime, you know, the, the young woman having to walk home from the bus stop, she feels the crime. She feels the, uh, the, the threat, you know? So there's a lot of people in the Philippines who support Duterte because he's seen as the tough on crime guy. Yeah. So it's cool because Chris is a smart guy and you don't always get a chance to talk to people who live in the Philippines. You get to see what's going on every day. I I found it to be a a, a mix when I uh, talked to their military people, you know, not that it always came up, but when it did, you know, some of them are distrustful of Duterte uh, because they think he leans too far towards China. um, And Duterte does come out of a leftist background. Um, But there are others in the military who saw in the Filipino military, I should I should say who see Duterte as a reformer, um, think that he's a positive force for change in the Philippines. I had a great time, though, and I stayed out uh, later than you. I I normally do not really drink, but I indulged in some margaritas because we're at a Mexican place. And uh, after, like, an eight-hour team meeting of of just, like, (laughs) sitting down, listening to people, presenting what you're doing, I was like, all right, I'm going to unwind a little bit. So I'm still recovering a little bit from that. Really? A little bit, because I, I ended up getting home uh, in the a.m. and then, you know, waking up to come here in the a.m. Yeah, I hear you. So uh, yeah, I left kind of early after we finished dinner. I didn't even realize you left. I just looked over and it was, where's Jack? <laughs> no, I, I left around nine. Yeah, no, we went out after that. But I uh, I stopped drinking after the uh, Mexican place we're at, which was just great. And I should mention, just uh, to break balls here, because it was kind of funny, um, on the ride to the ace where people were staying, uh, Brandon was like, yeah, you know, it's cool for you guys to see these spots because, you know, uh, Nick Betts, our uh, web guy, is like living in Mexico with his wife and everything. And he's like, yeah, it's cool to see these spots that aren't touristy or else you end up at an Applebee's in Times Square along with the rest of the tourists. And I said, there's nothing wrong with Applebee's, though, once in a while. And then to go full circle, I look at Nick Betts' Instagram today and he's up at, this is on Instagram, so I'm not saying anything uh, out of line here, but he's like up at 3 a.m. eating Taco Bell with his wife <laughs> after going to this like very nice Mexican place. And I'm like, yeah, hey, nothing wrong with that. I, I would, my advice to people is really to avoid that whole Times Square area, uh, avoid Midtown food in general. However, if you've never been to New York City, you do want to see Times Square. And <sighs> Why? There's nothing there. But... If you grew up seeing the ball drop on TV and you've never been here before, I, I understand why you'd want to. It's like Disneyland. Yeah. There's like there's really no reason to go there. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's not New York City. That's for the tourists. Yeah. That's what it exists for. Uh, I, I would not go there. I, when I'm to the point, I'm such a snob at this point, <laughs> when like friends come and they visit New York and it's like Saturday, and like, oh, will you come to Fifth Avenue with us? Will you come to Times Square with us? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> I, I will tell you how to get there, yeah. but I'm not going with you. I would get it, though. I mean, you've lived in New York your whole life. If you lived somewhere else, you'd, I think you'd want to at least just view it and to be there. I, I understand. So. I, I, I get it. But I do not want to go walking around Fifth Avenue on a Saturday. Yeah, like, I get it. It gets chaotic. Um, anyway, getting to some emails here. The first one I kind of mentioned, so we'll get this one out of the way. Um, this is from Michael DeStefano. Hey, hey guys, quick question. Just cut the cord and got Apple TV. I'm a soft rep team room member. However, I can't seem to download the app through Hulu or Apple TV. Do I just need to uh, do more troubleshooting? Or are you guys not available through those services? Help, 
New York's LOL, Mike Stefano, P.S., keep up the great work. Um, so it's not, as far as I know, it's not on Apple TV or Hulu. The app, anyone could download, but if you want to watch the Spec Ops channel, if you're a team room member or Spec Ops channel subscriber, um, you yeah, you could you could watch on your computer. I'm pretty sure that you can watch the Spec Ops channel and the on training the cell on the app. Yeah, yeah on the SoftRep app. So, yeah, download, right? It's all, it's all on the software yeah. app. So download that, and you can check it out. And, and even if you're not a member, you could kind of preview some stuff. and then You can read uh, You can read SoftRep. You can read the website. Um, it's actually a pretty cool app that they built. I it's like great. it. Yeah, Chris, who we just talked about, does an yeah. amazing job. Yeah, he does. Um, and then this is a little bit different of an email, but I figured we'd, we'd read it. This is from uh, Thomas. Uh, good afternoon, gents. My name is T.C. Richards. I'm a senior at Texas Tech University, and I'm pursuing a career as an Air Force pararescueman. I'm about to get trippy as hell with y'all. Uh-oh. I wanted to get y'all's <laughs> thoughts on a sort of supernatural concept I believe in. He says y'all a lot here, which sounds funny for me as a New Yorker. But, uh, yeah, most of y'all are combat vets. I certainly am not. Jack is. Uh, so if anyone believes in this concept, it'll be y'all. As I said, he says y'all a lot. A sixth sense that draws you to the shit, the gut feeling that leads you to an opportunity to do your job. If y'all believe in it, do you believe it's something someone is born with or something that is developed? Personally, I believe it's something you were born with. For whatever reason, I've always been drawn to chaotic situations, rolling up on car accidents, coming face-to-face with an active shooter on the tech campus, had the same feeling before all of this shit. Let me know what y'all think. And that's from Thomas. Definitely a different email. Um, but it's it's interesting, I think, because people's um, instinct is either to, like, run away for the chaos, from the chaos or run towards it. And I think he's getting at that a little bit. I don't know if anyone has the instinct to run towards the chaos. I think that's, like, something that... Um it's like the the super ego taking over, you know, and telling you your instinct is to run. But then, you know, there's a that voice in the back of your head that do I run towards? Is it my job to run towards the danger or run away? But the question of intuition is interesting. And I think a lot of people who served in combat and other professions as well, uh, other than soldiers, would say that there's definitely a such thing as intuition or a sixth sense. Um, personally, I, I think what it actually is is your subconscious mind picking up on something that you haven't consciously um, perceived yet. So, you know, maybe, you know, you haven't seen something, but you hear something, um, or we, we would often say you feel something, right? So it's like that feeling of being watched. And so a lot of times it's because you're actually being watched yeah. and you turn around or somebody <laughs> looking at you, you know? So, that, I mean, there is a such thing as a sixth sense and, um, but it's always hard to quantify what it is and, you know, or, or rely on it, you know, for, especially from like a, a military perspective, like, okay, we're going to use our sixth sense to divine where the bad guy is like, man, that never works. <laughs> yeah. But there is a such thing as intuition, you know, I mean, our, our subconscious mind can sometimes connect dots for us and kind of guide us in the direction that we can then use other information to confirm if it's true. Yeah, that, I think that's logical. Um, so thanks for sending that to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I, I read everything that we get, even though a lot of the emails we've been getting, I don't know if this has happened to you, is there There seems to be people who are writers for like other sites that are almost have us on a list of pitching other sites to put their articles up. Oh, yeah. And it almost seems like they fill out a form. That, yeah, it's, a, it's PR hype. It's like press releases they send out to everyone. But they, 
they personalized it in a way that... Hey, I, Ian. Yeah, but it'll say... I enjoyed Alex Holland's article on old man fitness. I write a fitness column, and I think it's that they yeah, always fill yeah. something out. I and then I get these emails. Uh, so that's a lot of our emails, unfortunately. And then I get emails again. Hey, Ian, did you get our last email? And, like, you could tell they didn't read the site. They don't know that we're a primarily veteran-run. Yeah, yeah, they're just, like, ad agencies and things like that. Yeah, so if you are an actual fan sending us an email, <laughs> I do read them. We don't get to all of them. but And if you want to send voice memos, uh, like, you know, as Gene Forensworth often does, we'll play those as well if, if it's good and we have sure. time to. So um, with that, I think enough said. We will get to Mike Vining because people are very much anticipating um, hearing the rest of his story. Um, and, and as most of you know by now, the guy's bio is just incredible otc class number one the first ever operators training course for army delta force um and we talked about his work as an eod tech in vietnam so let's get right over to him hey mike okay gotta turn my volume up yeah you said you sound good you probably can't see us i want to see if i could change i thought we had it on here but you you probably could barely even see us in that video that, oh, I can, I, I can see him out is what it is. I can see you. You can see me. Yeah, I can see him. I'll, Hi, I'll, Mike. How are you I'll doing? I'm a little clearer. I'm going to shut this down over here. Okay, Ian. How are you doing? I am great. That's Jack you're seeing, and now you can see me, I believe, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Hi, Jack. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. So we're excited to have you back. You were a huge hit. People <laughs> really loved that, that interview with you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll get right into everything, right? If uh, if you're good to yeah, go. Yeah, where okay. you want to pick up, you know, start off. At. Yeah, I think, uh, as I recall, Mike, I think we left off uh, talking about the invasion of Grenada. Uh-huh. Um, I guess, you know, you're telling us about how, uh, you know, you guys had tried to infiltrate and uh, on helicopter and had been, you know, shot up pretty good. Uh, I recall talking about that. Do you then want to get into how the rest of Grenada unfolded uh, for you guys, um, the people who had to be treated and, you know, maybe what some of the lessons learned from uh, the invasion were? Yeah. Um, during Operation Urgent Fury, the invasion of Grenada, uh, there was a, a lot of lessons learned, of course, and out of that, that's how U.S. SOCOM uh, came about, the creation of U.S. SOCOM, mm -hmm. from all the problems that we had communicating with the, the Marines and the other units that were involved in the operation. Uh, our B Squadron, our, our task was the, to uh, siege the Richmond Hill Prison and uh, rescue all the political prisoners that were being held there. Um, we, you know, we feared that the political prisoners may be, you know, shot or something might happen to them. So that's what our mission was. And that was a priority mission for Delta was the prison. And we were supposed to assault the prison uh, just before first light. But as things got delayed and delayed and the operation slowed down, it was daylight when we, you know, flew across the ocean, the Caribbean, and uh, hit the shores of Grenada. We were monitoring the radio on Grenada, and 
they had already announced, even before we hit the shore, that the invasion of Grenada has begun to grab your rifles and meet the Americans at the beach. Um, so when we arrived over the beach, uh, there was a lot of people down below that had gathered on the beach. Some were waving, and, and then some were, you could hear a pop, pop, you know, taking a shot at us as we continued on to the prison. We had eight helicopters in our formation, the Blackhawks, and uh, this was the first combat use of Blackhawks. And um, as we got near our destination, the last two helicopters, seven and eight, peeled off. They carried the, the Navy, the SEAL, SEAL Team 6, and their mission was to uh, rescue the Governor General uh, on Grenada, uh, guy, his last name, I think it was Schoons, and they were to rescue him. He was being under house arrest in his residence. So then we have six helicopters going in, and the, the prison appeared down below us. And our, I was in helicopter number five. Our mission was just to land outside the prison, fast rope down, and this would be the first fast rope operation in combat. And we'd we had 100-foot fast ropes and um, there was a guard barracks outside the prison, and we were to take control of the guard barracks. Um, so, uh, but as we approached the prison, there was another ridge that was higher up than us, and it was uh, Fort Frederick. And uh, immediately we became under fire at Fort Frederick. Uh, they had uh, ZSU 23s. Uh, they didn't have the radar system on them, so they were manually fired. Um, so in 12.7 caliber and 7.62, so we immediately were taking 23 millimeter rounds and and getting pretty well shot up. And uh, so as we attempted to assault the prison, the fire became too intense. Like our door gunner on the left side uh, was immediately shot, and he was incapacitated and couldn't return fire. And uh, all we had was assault weapons. And um, so as we hovered there, waiting to get on the ground to drop the fast ropes and everything, the helicopters just pulled off sight. Uh, helicopter four, the one that was in front of us, the pilot was mortally wounded, and um, they crashed into the jungle. So then we went away, and then we circled back around and tried it for a second time. And there was Again, no, uh, Mike, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but there was no air support that could have suppressed the ZSU-23 or anything like that? I don't know why there was no air support why we did not have jets on the standby to call in to suppress the fire. Um, I don't know why we didn't have an AC-130 gunship. I, I don't know why. I've never knew the answer to that question. Um, they were prepared for us. They knew we were coming. Uh, it was no surprise. And... Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't answer why. Wow, 
Uh, so you had to peel off your your bird made peeled off, and uh, and then what happened? Well, then we went in for the second time, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, it was pretty intense the first time, <laughs> and to, it reminded me of the charge of the Light Brigade, you know, the in the Crimean War, I think it was 1854, when the Light Brigade got their orders uh, was misunderstood, and they charged the uh, Russian Turkey position and uh, through the, all the cannons and everything and then they as they went through the cannons then they went beyond the cannons then they turned around and went back out and had to go back through that oh uh, and so it reminded me of the charge of the light brigade when we went in for the second time and again we attempted to get the helicopters down so we could fast rope in and the, the pilots pulled off the target. Uh, so we landed near the airfield, at, uh, Salinas Airfield, uh, on a, uh, a piece of high ground overlooking the airfield. And we watched the Rangers uh, parachute in uh, while we were on that hill. And then we, they checked all the helicopters, and we only had one f- helicopter that was flyable. So uh, we put two teams, my team and another team, got on that helicopter, and then we went to the site of the crashed helicopter to secure it, and then a, medic, a medevac helicopter came in off one of the ships th- that was outside and uh, pulled out the people that were injured in that crash. And, of course, the pilot was mortally wounded. He was dead. Uh, the co-pilot suffered gunshot wounds. Um, everybody that didn't crash helicopter was pretty well busted up. Uh, one of our guys that was in the helicopter was had to be medically discharged later because of his injuries. And uh, so once we pulled them out uh, and, and got them, then we went out to the aircraft. Oh, not aircraft. It was a frigate out there called the USS Mossberger. And then we dropped all of our wounded off on the Navy ship that was out there. And we were, you know, we still had all of our grenades, guns, and everything. And boy, when we landed on those ships, they were just going crazy. So as we were moving our wounded to where they needed to go, they had people, Navy people, following us because we had, you know, live ammunition. (laughs) The Navy kind of freaks out on that. And uh, so I don't know what that seaman would have done. Uh, but then we went back to the airfield, and then we were seeing if we would have to do a ground assault on the prison. And by that time, we got word that um, they freed all the political, opened the gates and let all the political prisoners out. Oh, that the guards had actually released them. Yeah, they were released. I think we, they used up all their ammo and uh, saw no reason <laughs> to keep them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's what happened in Grenada and uh, for us. And that was the end of the Delta mission. The follow-up Delta missions never happened. Uh, later on that day, we flew out at the airfield. The Rangers took the airfield, and that was the end for us. What was the follow-up mission that you get were maybe anticipating? Well, uh, there was another fort 
uh, Fort Rupert. There was a fort, and that, that A Squadron's mission was to to capture that fort. Ah, I see. But they were going to be using our helicopters, and we they the helicopters were all shot up. Oh, I see. Now, I want to say about those Blackhawks. Had we had six Huey helicopters, like in Vietnam, there would have been six Huey helicopters in the jungle. Those those Blackhawks took a beating. Uh, they had self-sealing tanks, um, you know, taking 23-millimeter round. Uh, let's see, ma- it was uh, Major Boykin, who was later Lieutenant General Boykin, he had a SATCOM radio on his back. He took a 23-millimeter round in the SATCOM radio, and that took most of the, the blast. He did lose some of his muscle in, one of, in his arm, but uh, that was kind of the fire that we were taking. Wow. So, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but was uh, 160 if had not been fully stood up yet at this point? If I that was right. the 160 crew. That was it their was first. Them. Okay. They 160 became operational, I think, in October of 1981, and this okay. was October uh, 1983. So, we had actually been working with Task Force 160 a little bit prior to Grenada. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Um, okay. So then, after Grenada, I. You know, like you said, there's a lot of lessons learned. It led to the um, uh, oh, oh uh, yeah, the nun, uh, the nun uh, amendment, Nichols, which was, Nichols Goldwater, yeah, which was part Gold. of the Nichols Goldwater Act. Yep. Um, and so I guess it's it's your story, Mike. So what what <laughs> what what happened after this? I mean, uh, I know for a lot of Americans, there's still this perception that during this time period, there wasn't a, a much going on, but you know, as you and I know, um, there were other things happening around the world, and, and you guys stayed quite busy. Right. Well, Beirut took place in October. The uh, the truck bombing there at the Marine Barracks took place at about the same time. I think that was October 23rd, and uh, our invasion was October 25th, I believe. I got the dates correct. So we had Beirut was going on, and... Uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, I just, uh, I'm trying to think of anything else, uh, in about Grenada that I want to say, mm-hmm. but, you know, it was, um, you know, the Rangers mission too, was to not only seize the airfield, the Ranger mission was to the medical students yeah. to, there was American, and to to the public, um, that was the primary focus of of why we went to Grenada to prevent to say you know protect those American medical students. But you know, I think the real reason was to reestablish a, a democracy in Grenada, not for it not to be a puppet uh, country for Cuba right. and Soviet Union. There was um, the Cubans were there. Why the we, was going on? They were building, uh, the, expanding the runway. They were making hangars for the Meg aircraft, so to be closer to the United States. Um, there was Cuba. There was Cuban engineers building the airfield, but 
these guys were like combat engineers. They were previously had served in Angola. So right. they were veterans. And so when they got wind that we were going to invade the island, um, they, uh, they stood up with the Grenadians to oppose us. And, and whenever we look at these types of things, I mean, I think we have to look at it as sort of the, um, the, the, the currents of the time and the, the strategic pieces that were moving in 1983. As you, you mentioned, Angola and the Cubans who had fought in the Angola conflict, that was the CIA's second largest covert operation was to thwart those communists in Angola. The largest was the uh, paramilitary operation in Afghanistan, which we spoke about with Jack Devine, who was intimately involved in that. Um, and then Grenada pops up, and that would have been another place where the communist forces could have projected themselves around the Caribbean. And, of course, if you have – it's an important geostrategic foothold that you could potentially have in the Caribbean and reach out with uh, helicopters and fighter jets to the various islands in Central America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there were obviously some important reforms made, um, and you know, Special Operations Command was created. Um, for you, I mean, what, what came next? I mean, I, I think we talked a little bit in the past about um, some of the interesting training exercises that you participated in, um, but also were you involved in, uh, in Beirut or uh, any of the stuff going on in Central America at the time? No, I personally was not. We did have a group of folks that were involved in part of the unit in Central America and South America. Uh, with the drug cartels, but these were our guys that were of Hispanic uh, origin, uh, could speak uh, Spanish. Uh, The only thing I did was I went to Ecuador and uh, worked with their national police, our counter-terrorist team in Ecuador. We, We did an exercise uh, for them, and while they did conducted the exercise, we evaluated their techniques, and then post exercise, we critiqued what they did right, what they did wrong, where their weak areas, where they needed training. Uh, did a lot of that stuff. We, I went to Korea. We invel- we evaluate did the same thing. We did joint t- training with the Korean uh, counter terrorists. Uh, unit there, uh, 777. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I worked with the their EOD folks, explosive ordnance disposal folks. Uh, Dennis Wolf and I worked with them and taught them how to, you know, attack and work on IEDs. And uh, so we did a lot of the different types of training. That's what mainly I was involved in. Up uh, until, uh, let's see, what else happened? Some of the things that happened, uh, well, I was looking at my notes here, and uh, uh, Desert Storm. Yeah, in April of 82, we went to a high, had hijacking in Honduras. Yes. Um, They took a small Dash 7 aircraft, they had some Americans on board. And a terrorist group held that hostage there. So we flew in, we, a small group, uh, and they had uh, supposedly two IEDs on board the aircraft. And they negotiated with the Hondurans, and they, 
And um, what they did, they provided them with another aircraft to go to Cuba. And But the condition was they had to leave all their explosives behind. So when they moved to the other aircraft, then I was tasked to go on board and to see if they left their explosives behind. And, uh, and the, their explosives were just basically uh, nitroglycerin-based dynamite. Um, they were going to, if somebody assaulted, assaulted the aircraft, they would just hand... Well, it was like a suicide-type device that they had if we would assault the aircraft. So I went on board. I could find only one explosive device up front, and, um, and supposedly there was one in the back of the airplane in a bag. I searched, couldn't find it. So I told them that uh, radio told them I found one explosive device, couldn't find the second one. And the terrorists said they only had one explosive device. They lied about the second one. <laughs> so I says, well, I can't find it. So so that was it. But then they wouldn't let the, the, the terrorists leave on that plane to go to Cuba. They had the runway blocked off with fire trucks and such uh, until we dis- rendered safe the, the bomb. And he so, still had control of the hostages at this point. Yes, they still had control of the hostages on board the other aircraft, but they had the runway blocked off. So I, I met with General Alvarez. He's head of the um, Honduran Army. He had two of his bomb techs, and I talked to them through an interpreter. They only spoke Spanish. And um, I, I asked them if they wanted to render safe the bomb or they wanted me to do that. And they wanted to render it safe to make and to remove it from the aircraft. And I asked him, well, do you need my technical help? And they said, yeah. So I took them aboard the aircraft, showed them the bomb, explained how the bomb worked and stuff. And I asked them through an interpreter, what was their plan? What was their procedure they're gonna do for the bomb? Well, they, uh, they first were gonna hit it with what's called, a, at the time it had a J-rod, it was a, water, a little shoots a projectile of water to disrupt the bomb and to remove the batteries from the, the bomb. But I told them that you don't want to use a J-rod when you nitroglycerin-based dynamite because if that water hits the dynamite, that pulse of water, it will de- detonate the dynamite. You might as well just blow it up in the airplane. Then they said, well, we'll put on a bomb suit and carry it out. And I said, well, you don't really need to do that. So I said, we can remotely remove this bomb. So I showed them how you can set up some uh, rope lines and pulleys. And we remotely removed the bomb and carried it out into a ditch from the aircraft. And then I let them hit it with their (laughs) J-rod. And it went up? No, it didn't. Because we aimed it really good. So we just took out the batteries and um, and then I told them that, you know, of course, you have to search each stick of dynamite for a secondary device, like chemical delay pencil that could be implanted in there. So it took about twice as long to do this, but it was a good training exercise for the Hondurans. Absolutely. Yeah. And after That's, the bomb was neutralized, uh, were the hostages released? Yeah, hostages released. The terrorists took off to Cuba, and that was the end of it. That was our involvement in that one. 
And let's see, another thing I was involved in prior to Desert Storm was the Atlanta prison riot in oh, 1987. Yeah. Um, let's see, I was on, it took place in November of 1987. Right. Had the, the, um, it was a Cuban the prison Cubans riot. rioted in Atlanta prison. They were, these were Castro had opened up, uh, there was the Mariana boat people. Castro mm-hmm. had opened up his prisons and, and uh, his insane asylums, you know, and gave him boats and let him go to the to America. He was, you know, basically Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter. He was just throwing this and his human rights thing in his face, and and uh, so we had all these uh, criminals and criminally insane people that were being held in. Our prisons, both at Oakdale, Oakdale, Louisiana prison, we had the riot was going on at the same time. So that they were because it was talk about sending them back to Cuba. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you remember any of of that. So uh, let's see. And you guys were called uh, in. President Reagan was president at the time. Uh, The FBI needed help. Uh, because of the two prisons, and so they waived posse comitatus, and so we were allowed to go into Atlanta prison, work with the FBI and uh, the FBI SWATs, because FBI the HRT was at the Oakdale prison, and um, the FBI SWATs did not have any breaching capability. They couldn't use explosives. It was right. forbidden for them, and so we were their breachers, uh, our sniper observers uh, set up observation posts. We had our comms people there. We had our medic people there. So, but basically, we were there to support the FBI SWAT teams during that prison riot. And so, did you build the breaching charges and things like that? We did. We, as, as yes, we built the breaching charges to breach through the prison jail cells and doors and stuff. And, of course, they took over the machine shop, the prisoners did, and they had uh, welders. And so they were – you could hear the grinding wheels going where they were making steel sh- you know, shanks. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they were taking – they were putting – they were welding doors and putting metal on doors to reinforce doors. So they were just making it hard for us to get in And uh, as time went on. And uh, – the biggest mistake that the prisoners made, the Cubans there, was they let everybody out of the, their jail cells. There was a jail cell block called E Block. E Block had the um, the hardened criminals, the very worst of the worst. You know, it's before we had the supermax prisons, and so they let everybody out of E Block. And there was this one guy, and his name was Silverstein. And this guy, he, he, he was an Aryan Nation guy, big guy. All he did in prison was work out. He'd do it like handstand push-ups, and, and uh, he had killed people. He had killed, I think, a prison guard. He'd killed other prisoners. So he's in there for life. He's just, he's just a bad. And we were told that if he approached us, if he did not obey what we told him, that his hands were considered lethal weapons, 
and that we could use, we were authorized to use deadly force on him. What, what we were worried is that this guy Silverstein was going to take revenge on some of the guards that were held hostages and um, that he might kill some of those guards that he had bad blood with. And we told the Cubans through the negotiators that if anything happened to those hostages, you guys were responsible. If Silverstein did anything to those guys, that that's you know that's the end of any negotiation. So, what was funny is the Cubans threw a party. They invited Silverstein to the party. They they made the, they were making their own alcohol in there in the prison, <laughs> and they put they had they had the medical clinic. They put some drugs in his drink, and they drugged him, jumped him, tied him up, and brought him to the front gate and gave him to us. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite interesting. That's effective negotiating right there. Yeah, yeah, because he he was just causing trouble in there. But eventually they reached a settlement and we did not have to assault the prison. Was that a relief? They, yeah. The FBI HRT did the Oak, Oakdale. They did a takedown at Oakdale. But Atlanta prison, uh, that was negotiated. So those are some of the missions that we did. And it was you know, one of the few times the president waived posse comitatus. And I, posse comitatus was set up, you know, that law. Uh, after the Civil War, that you couldn't use federal troops, you know, like a, you couldn't deputize federal troops, like a sheriff couldn't go to the army there and say, all you guys now are my deputies. And so that's what posse comitatus is. When I was writing about um, about the formation of Blue Light and how Delta came about, and uh, and we had talked a little bit about that too when I wrote that article, uh, it was interesting that how uh, the Green Berets, as special forces, prior to all of this in the 70s, had been called up at one point um, to begin mission rehearsals because um, some black militants took over several buildings in Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, and that would have been one of those cases where they would have had to waive that so that the U.S. military could operate on American uh, soil. Uh, thankfully, we don't really need that anymore because we have units like HRT. Um, right. But it's interesting how all of that and you can see how it developed over time and how these institutions developed and we created these new capabilities. Well, like the president would have to, you know, you can use National Guard to, to protect the borders. And that's what they're talking about. Right. But you would if to use the regular army. He would have to and he has the power to to waive posse comitatus. And I don't think that's a good thing. No, no, neither do I. Um, well, a lot of people that also don't understand that we have two National Guard groups that are spe- special forces groups in the National yeah. Guard, and uh, it's completely legal and okay for them to um, work domestically. They do um, hurricane relief, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and they, they've, like after Hurricane Katrina, for instance, and those guys have done a lot of good work over the years. Right. Yeah. Do you want to start uh, going into the Gulf War a little bit then? Yeah. Uh, we're, I know sure. we're jumping ahead. Unless yeah, there's something else okay. you want we to do. We go to the Gulf War. Um, it's, a long, it's a long career. So there's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah well, during the, our mission during the Gulf War, um, 
we had a joint kind of a joint shared mission with the British SAS, and we were primarily doing the scud hunting missions. So we divided uh, Iran, uh, excuse me, Iraq up into two sectors. And uh, the British SAS would take the one sector, we had the uh, other sector, and we would be searching for SCUD missiles. Once we found SCUD missiles, then we would call in air support and uh, take out the SCUD missiles. So that was our primary focus during Desert Storm. Um, my, my particular, I was not directly involved in that. Uh, I was tasked to, there was a command and control bunker called Taji Number 2. It was a two-story cut-and-cover facility, and um, that was the command and control for the Iraqi forces. And uh, they had, the Air Force had dropped 60 Blue 109s on that bunker, and a blue 109 is a special 2,000-pound bomb that is uh, hardened steel. And that, at that time, the, that was our Bunker penetrator bomb that we had in our arsenal. And they dropped 60 of them on this bunker and did no damage to it. And uh, so in all theory, uh, a bunker like that in would have been taken out with uh, with a nuke, like a B-61, for example. But uh, in today's, we're not going to be used <laughs> using a nuke, so we did not have a conventional bomb to take out that bunker. And so we were planning a ground attack. Uh, it would be a ranger battalion, and uh, then there would be just two of us from Delta would be attached to the rangers, and another breacher and myself, we would train a breacher, a ranger breaching team to go in. And there was two big, big blast doors. And one team would take one blast door. Uh, another team would take the other blast door. We would breach it. We would assault it with the rangers. And um, then once we gain entry to it, then we would destroy it with a lot of explosives. So I was involved in that plan. Taji number two. And so I had to brief uh, General Steiner on how we were going to do that. We knew a lot about the bunker. We watched it be built from satellite. Um, we knew the company that there was a Swiss company that helped build it. They didn't finish it. The Iraqis finished it themselves, but uh, the Swiss company helped build it. So we knew a lot about it. So I briefed General Steiner and I told General Steiner, if we roll back time to 1945, we could have destroyed that bunker. But here <laughs> it is, 1991, and we can't take the bunker out because we went, that type of target would be a nuclear target. Right. Our set, we did not have a chemistry. In, in 1945, we had several things going for us. We had the, the British 22,000-pound Grand Slam bomb. There was the 12,000-pound Tall Boy bomb uh, that we used to take out uh, submarine pens. The Brits did with their Lancaster bombers, took out submarine pens with 10, you know, with like 10 meters of concrete. Uh, these bombs would go through. 
they took out aqueducts, they took out uh, railroad tunnels, uh, and they also used the, some of the bombs on some of the dams. They also had another dam buster bomb, but we had the capability. And we also, uh, later on after World War II, we had a T-12 bomb, which was 43,000 pound bomb. And, uh, you know, they saying the Moab bomb was the biggest bomb. Well, the T-12 was the biggest bomb, 43,000-pound bomb. And Don't I say said, that to Trump, I guess, because, right, I mean, we were told the Moab was, right? That's <laughs> Well, now. Yeah, that's what news people do. Uh, they sensationalize things. But we had the T-12. And I told General Steiner, we actually have two T-12 bombs uh, around there's one in Florida at the Armament Museum at Eglin Air Force Base, and at that time the other T-12 was at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. I said, well, we could fill those up with explosives, and uh, and drop them. So anyway, we're going to do the ground attack. But as a sideline, this they developed the GBU-28, which was the uh, sodomizer. The GB-28. 28, um, a guy, uh, an officer at uh, one of the arsenals in New York, I'm trying to think which arsenal, they had a bunch of eight-inch gun barrels sitting around. And the, this officer looked at those gun barrels and said, you know, we could pack those full of those eight-inch artillery barrels full of explosives, put a nose cap on it, put some tail fins on it, put a guidance system on it, and we could use one of those those uh, eight-inch gun barrels to take that bunker out. So that's what they did. And why it's called GBU-28 is it took 28 days from the time it was started till they dropped the first test bomb out at Eglin, uh, 28 days. And that's remarkable time. So they built, they, they got two of these bombs and they put them on one bomb on two on F. They had two F-111s out of England, so they put one of these bombs on one of the F-111 wings, and of course it weighed a little over 4,000 pounds. So they had to put two 2,000 pound bombs on the other side to balance it out. So they had two F-111s with two with each carrying a GBU-28, and this is on the last day of the war. So as the first F-111 comes around and goes and drops its bomb, uh, it misses the target. The first bomb misses. So he got only one bomb left. Second F-111 comes around, and uh, it launches it, and it hits top dead center. You, I saw the video footage, and you can see the bomb goes through the top of the bunker, and then you can see those two bomb blast doors just shoot out into the desert and totally destroy that. And that was on the last day of the war. Wow. So, so there what my mission. <laughs> so were you still prepared for the ground assault if that, if that bomb had missed? Well, that was the last day of the, we were, pre we were prepping up for it, but um, everything kind of slowed down. So I thought, you know, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I didn't know nothing at the time about the GBU 28, so they were probably counting on that, and so, but yeah, that would have been a great mission, but we never were able to execute it. And but they did take it out. 
And this is a, a, just an interesting aside. You mentioned the, the other mission that the SAS and Delta had at Scud Alley and Scud Boulevard. And just Ooh. by happenstance, I, I actually ended up having dinner with the gentleman who commanded the SAS at that time, the British officer. And um, I asked him if the SAS had destroyed any Scud launchers. And he said no. Um, but, you know, the point of it was really to, den- to deny the enemy freedom of movement in that area, which they did succeed in. And I just wanted to ask you, Mike, since, you know, you were involved in uh, or at least present in the unit at the time, um, you know, what kind of that after action report was for the unit um, from their experience scud hunting? You know, whew, I do not know. Uh, uh, whew, good question. Yeah, I don't know what we, you know, we just, you know, developed our our land reconnaissance techniques and stuff like that. We had three, we had three fatalities in the unit during Desert Storm. The helicopter crash. The helicopter crash at RR. What had happened is uh, one of our vehicles ran into a, a royal, uh, a big ditch, and uh, Pat Hurley uh, injured his back, and so we so they called in a medevac helicopter to get Pat out, and uh, Otto Clark and Rod Rodriguez uh, were two medics were in that helicopter. They flew out into Iraq, picked Pat up, and they were flying back to where we were working out at RR in Saudi Arabia, and uh, there was a dust storm. As they approached our, our uh, couldn't see. There's just this one hill, not very far from the from the the airstrip there, and the helicopter ran into that hill, and everybody on the helicopter were killed. So that was our three fatalities from the unit, and of course the the helicopter crew too. That's horrible. Yeah, I remember uh, many years ago now, we interviewed Dale Comstock, and I remember him talking about being out there, and uh, and I believe he actually saw the helicopter go down way off in the distance, but it's a sad story. Yeah, yeah, I had my only my task was that all the ammunition on the helicopter. I helped destroy it. We just blew it up. And then coming home from the Gulf War, I must have, you'd all, you had already had quite a career at that point. Yeah. Well, then let's see what my next one was. Next one would have been uh, Haiti. The uh, 94? Uphold, yeah, 90, uh, 94, Uphold Democracy. And um, so we were, because the, the Haitian government, we decided that we would do an invasion and uh, to restore the, a democratic government. And um, so this time we were going to be operating out of uh, a aircraft carrier, the USS America. We would have a, a float forward staging base on the aircraft carrier. And uh, so it was, uh, I think it was Joint Task Force 188, and so we got on board at Norfolk, uh, the carrier, and then when we got out off Georgia, uh, the helicopter, Task Force 160 helicopters then flew on the carrier. 
we had we had couple, two of the SEAL teams on board. We had a full Ranger battalion on board the aircraft carrier from one battalion. We had a company from a second battalion. We had a, I think, a platoon from another ba- Ranger um, battalion. Um, and uh, so we had Task Force Brown, which was Task 160. And uh, that was mainly what we were composed of. So it would be our, mainly a Ranger SEAL team assault on different targets in Grenada. I mean, Grenada. In Haiti. <laughs> this is Haiti. So, uh, and that was called Operation Uphold Democracy. And um, so we went off Haiti, and while we were getting ready to assault, do training and everything, uh, pr- former President Jimmy Carter, a few other people uh, went into uh, Haiti and and, and uh, negotiated a a peaceful turnover, uh, but it was close. At the time, we called everybody up on deck. We started loading the helicopters, and we were just getting ready to launch when we were told that it would be a peaceful tr- turnover. So then when we went in uh, to occupy Haiti, it was under peaceful conditions. Um, so... That was that mission. I, I did hear some stories from uh, some rangers, and also I believe there are some ODAs that were in Haiti patrol, doing kind of like some presence patrols and security patrols, but nothing ever really happened uh, as far as you know um, confrontations. No, that went that went peaceful, but we were all prepared to do that, and then it was unique that we were operating off an aircraft carrier for the first time, and uh, and. So now they've got a- actually built special naval ships to operate as uh, a float forward staging basis. So, yeah, now it's more common. That, yeah, it was interesting working with the Navy. Uh, I I worked the flight deck. Uh, I wore a white jersey and I was up there with as a safety on the flight deck during air operations, making sure that. Our guys uh, followed all the safety procedures. Had you know, were in the correct uniform. Had their goggles, helmets, uh, life jackets, and just doing certain things on an aircraft carrier. And uh, and we had to learn how to operate on aircraft carrier. We had to. We we were like the air crew on an aircraft carrier. We also had different duties on on board the aircraft carrier. I was on the aircraft carrier. I look at the dates. I wrote it down here, uh, from eight September to twenty two October. It was forty four days that we spent on the aircraft carrier. So we had to provide uh, kitchen police for the mess halls. We had to diff- different functions of the aircraft carrier. We had to supply people. Uh, I think I had to supply twenty. I was the senior uh, enlisted. For the joint task force on the aircraft carrier so uh every time my phone rang it was always a pro- problem to be solved i had to provide 28 uh people for kps uh 24 hours a day <laughs> and so the rangers said they would take the kp duties if i didn't assign them any other duties so i gave them that 
And then when we, we had to do some unreps, and the SEAL said but they'll take the un, do the unreps, help out with that. Well, what's an unrep? It's a underway replenishment. Ah, uh, okay. In other words, while we were at sea, another ship would come on mm-hmm. board, may come next to us, and they would launch helicopters back and forth, taking supplies like more food, different provisions, would then from one ship to the other ship, and then we had to move those uh, that cargo down into storage. You know, you would take it. You know, you had the um, elevators. Put it on the elevators. Yep. Take it down. Put it into the uh, hangar bay, and then move the stuff. So the seals did all that stuff. They said, "Hey, I'll, we will do this." So everybody, every all the different groups that I had on board, took different, did different. Uh, duties on board the the aircraft as an an army sergeant major you must i would have get all the ncos together senior ncos from the ship all the chiefs and our senior ncos twice a day we would have meetings uh solve any problems it was like our guys were breaking the weight weight room equipment and so i said well you give me a list of all broken equipment and i'll get it replaced uh our guys were che- wanting to check out library books, and they said, "Well, you got if you check out a library book, you got to leave an ID card." And I says, "We we could be called up on, to go into ha- uh, Haiti at any moment. We're not leaving ID cards. I'd guarantee that if a book is missing, I will get it back." And I told the NCOs, "I says any book is missing, I want it back." And uh, we as, just worked that as way. An, as an Army but, Sergeant Major, I mean, you probably never thought you would be pulling sea duty like this. Yeah, I got sea pay, too. <laughs> I actually got sea pay. I got, we got em, eminent danger pay. I, I always kid that the only thing that we were in eminent danger of is overeating. <laughs> uh, the chief's mess. You can't... The chiefs, the chiefs have the best mess on board the Navy ship. The chiefs actually add money to the chief's mess of the, out of their own pockets to support, to buy food. I mean, the lops, uh, the like uh, king crab, giant king crab legs, steaks. Uh, nice. I mean, we were eating pretty good. Uh, and um, what was funny, too, is, you know, most of the, except for the rangers, most of all the, you know, Task Force 160, all the SEALs, and uh, all the different guys were heavy ranked. And in the Navy, of course, E chiefs are E7 and above, like in the exchange on board the ship, the Naval Exchange. Um, yet they only allowed, uh, say, five people in the, Naval, the Navy Exchange on board the ship at a time. So you have to wait out line. But if you're E7 and above, you can cut the line and go into the 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 exchange on board the ship. So we're all standing a huge line. We're, we're standing out the Navy exchange and this Navy chief walks up and he's kind of cut in front of us. And we yell at him and says, Hey, get back in the back of the line. He says, well, I'm a, I'm a Navy chief. I can go to the front of the line. I says, we're all E sevens and above on this line. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, you're in the back. <laughs> that was kind of funny at, at this point I, I mean you'd mentioned you had a break in service but you must have been nearing your 20 years and, and decided to stay in 
Yes, I did. Um, yeah, I came in the Army in 1968, uh, 1 July of 68, and I retired 1 January of 99. I did have a two-and-a-half-year break after Vietnam. I got out mm-hmm. for two, and then I just didn't like uh, you know, working in a factory, and that wasn't for for me. I couldn't see the spending 30 years working in a factory. We made... Uh, metal stamping, body parts for Ford cars, um, different parts of the car. And it was good pay, but that's not what I wanted to do. So after Haiti, um, well, you were still around. You were around then also when uh, when Mogadishu happened. Yeah, Um, October 1983, October 3rd. Yeah. I was working in at Fort Bragg at the Jock, the Joint Operation Command uh, Center there uh, during that operation, and we were monitoring what was going on in Somalia, and that was our C squadron was involved in that, mm-hmm. and uh, I lost a real good friend, uh, Tim Martin. His nickname was Grizz. He was in the one of the convoy. Uh, that were going there to help uh, rescue the down, you know, Black Hawk down, um, and he they took an RPG seven in his vehicle, and Tim Tim was mortally wounded there, and, and he died on the way to Germany, but yeah, that was. Uh, so I was not on ground in Somalia, but I was uh, working the jock at Fort Bragg. On the backside. Yeah. And we just could just sit and watch. And um, On our last episode, we interviewed George Hand, uh, and he was talking about how uh, he, he was not in C Squadron. He was in A Squadron. So he, he was one of the guys who was sent his reinforcements after the uh, big battle. And he said, we got off the airplane and we walked right into the memorial service that they were already yeah. having out there on the tarmac. Yeah, that was, um, you know, I always had, always had a little bit of hard feelings about how we executed uh, the Mogadish thing, where that we operated right there at the airfield. And every movement that, every time we did anything, uh, we, there was people watching us. Um, and, uh, we should have, we should not have been on land there. We should have, we should have been on an aircraft carrier, uh, off and then doing raids, uh, from off at, out at sea, uh, instead of being under all the eyes. So as soon as the helicopters were launched, there was people reporting, okay, they're launching helicopters just become too predictable um, you know, daylight, you know, heavy, a lot of RPG sevens, uh, doing daylight operations and, um, you know, it's just, just a catastrophe just waiting to happen. And so then after, uh, after that and after Haiti, um, were you moved into more administrative positions up at the headquarters? Yeah, I'm in 1992, I actually, uh, I was still in Delta, but I, I worked from 90, 1992 to 1999, I worked at JSOC. Mm-hmm. At, I started at JSOC 
I worked for the first four years at JSOC, I was the exercise sergeant major. Uh, we would have four, uh, we'd have quarterly exercises, uh, joint readiness exercises, and uh, I was in charge of setting, you know, locating target sites for these exercises. Uh, I use I work closely with the rangers during this exercise, so usually I would be at the ranger target making sure that uh, everything was set up for them. We would have rangers that were the op four, and uh, I would just make sure of safety. Uh, and uh, so I did that for four years, was the exercise sergeant major at Joint Special Operations Command. And then they set up a cell um, uh, called, uh, well, the J3 Special Plans, and my t uh, I moved into a section called Target Defeat of Hardened Targets, where we would like that Taji number two, if we had targets like that, how would we get in, take them out, you know, and destroy the facilities? So we had, did have a couple of things that we were planning up. One of them was um, Tarhuna. Tarhuna is located in Libya, uh, just south of Tripoli, in a, a mountain range called uh, Tarhuna. And uh, Gaddafi was um, building a, a chemical production facility. Now he had Gaddafi had a production uh, pr production facility called Rafta, which was a small. Uh, open air facility where he can make nerve agent and mustard agents and stuff like that. But he was wanting to build a bigger facility in the area called Tarhuna. And he bought these two tunnel boring machines, you know, they're huge things that I think it come from Switzerland, like the channel in the, from England to France. That's what they used was those tunnel boring mm -hmm. machines. So he bought two of these. And he was he was digging into the mountain there at Tarahuna, and he was doing two parallel tunnels, and then he was going to do some side cross up tunnels to connect the two tunnels. But his plan was to build an underground chemical production facility. Now, the cover for this was called the Great Man-Made Water Project. And he was publicly saying that the, he was creating a water reservoir f that would supply water to Tripoli. So that's the cover. That's the reason he bought the tunnel boring machines. But we had intelligence that um, he, that's, he was making a chemical under, underground f production facility. So um, we started planning on that. How would we actually take out that uh, those two tunnels? And we were planning on taking them out before he could put the pr chemical production facility, install them. And uh, so the rocket he was drilling in was is sandstone, very impermeable sandstone. So we went out and scoured the country for a like type of sandstone. And um, we found the sandstone uh, at uh, Seguro, New Mexico, where New Mexico Tech is located at. They got the right kind of rock there. And so we were actually doing tests just like in 
coming up with a plan how to, you know, a big, huge tunnel, how you destroy a big, huge tunnel. And we were going to try to do is implode the tunnel. And so we were going to be drilling these. We were going to actually be using drilling rigs, drilling alongside the concrete structure, do parallel holes along the structure, fill them with a slurry, a pump in slurry explosives, and actually <laughs> implode the tunnel. So we, we did the planning, we did the testing and everything, and we had to figure out how we're going to get all this equipment to Tarhuna. And uh, so, but what happened was we never got any further than that. We did a lot of planning, you know, for every every 10 th- plans that we were planning for, operations we were planning for, you know, maybe one in 10 would actually take place. And um, so it was publicly released to the world that that's what his intent was, a chemical production facility underground. So once that was re- released to the pub to the world, he actually deceased operation. It didn't continue it anymore. So that was the end of that mission. But that's some of the things that we were working on. That's fascinating. Um, uh, I mean, these are some great stories, and I yeah. I'm just endlessly fascinated by this stuff. Um, but before I, I do want to talk about your retirement and your life after service, because I, I uh, you know I know you get to travel all around the country, and you and your wife uh, are definitely enjoying retirement. Um, before we get there, is there anything else about you know in a, uh, you know chronologically speaking, anything in your military career that you wanted to talk about? Oh, no, it's just been an interesting career. Um, and then I decided to, to fully retire when, in January of 99, you know, uh, and just travel with my wife. She's a photojournalist. So we're, we're gone about half the year going, you know, we, we've since I've retired, we've been down to Antarctica a couple times, uh, wow. South Georgia, Falklands. We've been to Greenland, uh, uh, Svalbard, which is a group of islands Norway. north of Norway, uh, Galapagos, the Amazon. So we just do that kind of stuff. But I still work with the EOD community. I am the um, historian for the Vietnam EOD uh, Veterans Chapter of the National EOD Association, and I'm assistant historian for the National EOD Association. I work with the the EOD Warrior Foundation doing research, and the last three years we've added names to the EOD Memorial, which is located at Eglin Air Force Base, and that's where the EOD school is. We've added names from the past, from World War II to Vietnam that uh, for some reason or another were not honored on the memorial. This year, well, May 5th uh, is a Saturday. The first Saturday in May is recognized by Congress as National EOD Day, first Saturday in May. And that's when we add the names to the memorial. And this year, the good news is we do not have any names to add from 2017 to Great. the EOD Memorial. This is the first year, I think, since 2001, we have not added names to the memorial. 
from current operations. And uh, But we are adding six Army names and six Navy names to the memorial from the past. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the, um, what their deaths were uh, unrecorded uh, due, due to circumstances. Um, and like one Navy guy was washed. He was a Navy bomb disposal guy, was on a uh, battleship. And he was washed overboard in World War II. Oh wow! So he, so he's being added to the memorial. Uh, we have two from Vietnam, two chemical officers from Vietnam who were EOD qualified that were killed in Vietnam, uh, added to the memorial. And uh, one, like Fred Smith, I knew Fred. I worked with Fred. Uh, did a couple disposal operations with Fred in 1969 out in the Rocky Mountain Arsenal in Den- the Denver area. And uh, then we worked together in Vietnam. He was a chemical officer, and I was with the EOD unit. And um, when I left Vietnam a month later, he, they were dropping these um, E-158 CS dispensers from inside the helicopter. These are clusters of CS containers that are about the size of a D-cell battery, and it holds a whole bunch of them. And they were just pushing them out of the helicopter down into a suspected uh, uh, enemy bunker complex. And the whole purpose is you drop these CS rounds down into a bunker complex from the air, and then you got Cobra gunships and everything on standby. So if you see any movement, you just take it. Take take it out. So the CS can- canister actually functioned on, on board the helicopter. Oh, man. And um, so, so the helicopter's filling with CS. It's a pyrotechnic. There's fire. And my friend, Captain Smith, he, he pushed the whole canister out of the helicopter, and he went with the canister out of the helicopter. Oh, my gosh. He saved everybody's life. And the, I talked to the pilot not too long ago, who was in the helicopter. He thinks about Fred every day that he saved everybody on the helicopter's life, sacrificed his life. Wow. Uh, I'm just curious, Mike, going back to what you said about the, you know, EOD Memorial, I, I, working on this show, I often hear when we have snipers on, say that like when they're in a room with a sniper of any era, they, they share a special bond that they might not feel with fellow service members. I'm wondering when you meet an EOD tech, whether it's someone from your era or someone, um, you know, more present day service, is is there a special bond that you feel is there with, uh, you know, just basically the life that you go through in such a risky job? Yeah, we do, and we have the National EOD Association. We even have a few World War II veterans that are still from bomb disposal from World War II that are still members of the National EOD Association. We have Korean War veterans. And so, and it's members of bomb disposal from all four services. EOD school, all four services go to the same basic EOD school. And then each service has specialized schools. So, yeah, there is a bond between all of us today and from the World War II veterans who started it all um, and today. Uh, let's, on, um, on one May... I'm being honored. Um, I'm, I'm being inducted into the U.S. Army Ordnance Hall of Fame. Much uh, congratulations uh, yeah, on one May at Fort Lee, Virginia. 
which is a great honor. There's only been 14 since from World War II to the present. Only 14 EOD people have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So I feel very honored to be inducted. The day before the induction, I'm going to be talking to a group of E7 promotable EOD folks. There's a class going through and going to just give a talk to them. And then there'll also be a class of uh, uh, captains, EOD captains that I'll be talking to and just sharing. I want to hear their experiences and and just be talking to them. So it's a great honor. I'm wondering what traits do you think someone needs to have to go into this line of work in particular? <laughs> go into uh, explosive ordnance disposal, bomb disposal. Um, well, I'd always been interested in chemistry. Um, and when I was a kid, I sent away the popular science back then life was different. Rules were different. <laughs> uh, in popular science, uh, they had, uh, you could send away in the classified ads for 101 explosives and pyrotechnic formulas for today. So when I was a kid, I sent away for that and I built, you know, I made my homemade explosives and I would set it off in the backyard and <laughs> do that. I would take, you know, make my own black powder. Uh, I, I made this stuff called these iodine, this iodine, explosives out of iodine crystals. You take, uh, well, basically iodine crystals, ammonium hydroxide, you get a precipitate, you filter the precipitate off, you get a paste. You can paste it on. It's like initiating explosive. It, sometimes just drying out, it actually detonates, and, and it is a high explosive. And I'd make that and, you know, and do that kind of stuff. So I had an interest in that before I went into the Army, and I was offered uh, – that's where I wanted to go. But at that time, you could not enlist in explosive ordnance disposal you had to go into the Army. You had to have a, a, an MOS. You had to have an AIT before you could volunteer for EOD. So my recruiter said, go to ammunition renovation. It's the maintenance of ammunition. Go to that school, and that will prepare you for EOD school. So I went to that school. Um, we had to learn how to dispose of ammunition. So the EOD came in to teach us how to dispose of ammunition. Then they asked for volunteers. So I volunteered. I went for an interview. And d during the interview, what you had to do was put on a chemical suit, the, M the M3 butyl rubber suit. We called it the brutal rubber suit. <laughs> so you had to put on this chemical <laughs> suit, and you had to put on the M9 mask. An M9 mask is a better mask than an M17 mask. It has just one little side filter. And so it's hard to breathe out of this mask. So you, if you got claustrophobia, it would be instantly apparent. So you have to put the suit on, and you have to work for 30 minutes in the suit. And that's, that was the initial evaluation to make sure that you could go into the EOD program. Wow. So. I, I just have to wonder now, I'm starting to follow up on that, with you creating these explosives at home as a kid. I mean, like nowadays... 
your parents would probably alert the authorities like, <laughs> and think you're going to be the next yeah. like school shooter. What 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 did yeah. your parents think? I mean, I would think even back then it would be out of the ordinary to be a kid making these explosives at home. My parents uh, t- s- supported me. They tolerated it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they fully understood what I was doing. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, that was a different time. Yeah. That was before the. Uh, that was before seat belts, for before car seats. Uh, it was a different world back then. As you look back now on uh, your career up until today, and I mean, you got to serve in EOD and be involved in the EOD community for such a long period of time, and then you know, after two thousand and one, since then, our troops have faced a uh, real prominent threat from IEDs. Um, perhaps more so than, you know, past conflicts. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, about the IED threat and how we can respond to it? Well, prior to the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, EOD was prom- a lot orient- uh, ordinance-oriented. We mm-hmm. concentrated on ammunition disposal of ordnance and um, spent a little very little time on improvised explosive devices when the current conflict um, I the main emphasis was on improvised explosive devices the school's emphasis was on improvised explosive devices they kind of moved away today uh, get away from Ordinance, knowing ordinance, under, you know, really understanding ordinance. Uh, today, that they're actually shifting back in their training, going back to more ordinance training, uh, knowing the ordinance, because uh, there's going to be a lot of cleanup uh, involved. Um, we had uh, in Vietnam, we had we had our IEDs, but we never called them IEDs. They were booby traps. They were, booby traps. Yeah. They were usually very simple. They were a vine going across the trail that would uh, function a pole friction device that would function uh, a mine. The the North Vietnamese had uh, the DH-5s and the DH-10 mines. They were kind of like our Claymore mines, but they were more focused, whereas our Claymore mines, the frag spreads out. These mines that the North Vietnamese had just would funnel down a trail and like a DH-5 would have five kilograms of explosive, a DH-10 would have 10 kilograms of explosives. They were doing the same thing. They would recover our artillery rounds, our 250-pound, 500-pound, 2,000-pound bombs. They would uh, they would bury those in the road in, Viet- in Vietnam. But you know, these were in control, detonate them. They, but these, we would just call them booby traps. Uh, and uh, But we did a lot of conventional. Uh, we had ammo dumps that would blow up. They would rocket attack, mortar attack, hit in our ammo dump, scatter ammunition all over the place in Vietnam. And we do a lot of that kind of cleanup, ammunition cleanup. A little bit different, but some of the same. And, of course, we fought in the jungle versus in the desert and in the urban environment. A few times in Vietnam, like uh, during the Tet offense in 1968, 
it became urban, but most of the time, it, everything took place in the jungle. And also, you, you were present to see the evolution of special operations. I mean, you were there. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't know if. Well, you were there for the creation of SOCOM. Some people would say is the beginning, but you know. I mean, you did get to see a wide breadth of special operations, and I was just curious about your thoughts about how it evolved. And you know, by the time you retired in 1999, I mean, it must have been a, a different, you know, just a different world. Oh, it did. It from from equipment and everything from well, from our first, uh, you know, the from the <laughs> world of difference from the Iran hostage rescue right. mission and what we had to work with there. I mean, that's that was. Uh, in um, 1980, uh, the Iran hostage rate in April of 1980 when that took place, and um, we had we there was a lot that we didn't have because after Vietnam, this is happening today too. I see that. I just got an email yesterday. Um, the downsizing of our military. Mm-hmm. We had the downsizing of our military in Vietnam. And, um, you know, the dismantling of the special operations, you know, from Vietnam earlier, every special operations unit, like the ones they had in World War II, Korea, be disbanded. Uh, that's the first thing it gets dismantled is all the special operations units. And so they that that was pretty dismantled after following Vietnam and um so we just didn't have the the helicopter airlifts that we needed, uh, like we would to do the mission, and just lost a lot of experience. We didn't have a lot of the experience. Um, you know, the, we had Navy pilots trying to fly the, the these helicopters, and they were they the, the helicopters we used were RH 53D model helicopters which were used for countermining, what they would do is they would fly the helicopters in the daylight, the Navy would, and they would do a pattern on the water to look locate mines. And then now we are asking those pilots to fly at night with night vision goggles over land, over desert, and it just in, in a short period of time, and it didn't work out. We got Marine pilots to take over the Navy helicopters and um, again, they w- did not have the training on night vision goggles, and we had a lot of problems. Had problems with the aircraft, maintenance problems. Um, they would we, sometimes the helicopters would get lost. Sometimes they wouldn't land where you wanted them to land. Um, so it was just a big. That was the biggest issue. Is the jo- we didn't have the joint in- infrastructure. To really do that that mission, we knew that if we got to the walls of the embassy, American embassy in Iran, that we thought we would rescue the hostages. We figured it'd be a problem getting them out. We didn't think all the helicopters would show up. They um, get lost. Uh, we we thought that if we could get the hostages out, that would be great. We had. We all had E and E plans, escape and evasion plans, to get out of Iran, uh, and uh, and we practiced those, uh, you know, trying to move, get out of Iran and work our way to Turkey. 
if we had to stay behind. I so. have a uh, a lot of gratitude uh, for you and for your teammates because you had spent so much time creating this capability. You know, I, I joined the Army a few years after you retired in 2002. Uh, we were going to war at that point. And, you know, it, I, I was the beneficiary, really, of a lot of the hard work that you and your peers had done. Uh, a lot of these really hard lessons learned that we've been talking about from Iran, Grenada, uh, Panama, so on, and so on. Um, so that when I got there, you know, this, this, these capabilities already existed. One sixtieth already existed. All of these things mm-hmm. that um, that we already had, rather than starting from scratch uh, after nine eleven. So I mean, and this is a great to go back in time and to hear how all of these things came about. Yeah, the uh, the Satcom radio in, during the Iran hostage rescue mission. Satcom radio is just coming into service then Mm -hmm. but but what you you couldn't use this like the hell they had satcom radio in the helicopters but they couldn't use the satcom radio they would have to land set up the satcom radio in order the antenna Mm -hmm. in order to use it they couldn't do use the operate it in flight not today operate it in flight but we had no that was our, our only secure radio communication I think, I mean, we covered a lot here, Mike. Uh, yeah, we've gone well <laughs> over an hour here. I mean, I really appreciate yeah, you taking the time. I do. I, I, I mean, I think the only th- other thing, I mean, we could definitely go more in depth and keep talking all day. I don't want to take up all your time. But I did want to ask, um, because we have so many guys who are veterans now who are uh, getting out of the military, reintegrating into civilian life. I want to ask, uh, you know, what your transition was like into, you know, retirement, if you had any difficulties, um, you know, kind of leaving the military and, you know, just moving on, I guess. No, it was pretty easy for for me, with uh, I got married the same month I retired, um, and my wife, like she, she was traveling full time, and that's what I liked about the military is the travel. I was gone all the time uh, to different countries and everything, so it was, it was a pleasure to just get out and to travel, you know, countries more of your choosing than. And also people not wanting to kill you while you're there. <laughs> uh, so it, so it, the transition, I had z- no problem personally with, with the transition out of the military. And uh, my wife, we, we rock climbed, we mountain climbed, we uh, ski, both backcountry, downhill ski, uh, mountain bike, uh kayak so that's just kept me going keeping an active lifestyle yes and uh like i i said uh, i just got an email from a from a commanding officer the other day eod commanding officer one of his guys got orders for drill sergeant school eod tech got orders for drill guard he want he wanted to know had this ever happened before and uh, he talked around to other people and never heard of a EOD guy coming down on orders for drill sergeant school. So, and so I'm getting ready to answer him, but uh, that's exactly what happened following Vietnam. I remember uh, in the downsizing of the military. I remember different 
uh, EOD E7s, E6s and E7s uh, having to be reclassed into their secondary MOS, mm-hmm. whether it be ammunition storage or a supply sergeant. I remember EOD folks at following Vietnam, NCOs getting orders for drill sergeant school. So it, now it's, uh, it's happening again. It would be a huge uh, mistake to squander the experience that these guys have that they've developed throughout the course of the war. Well, they're downsizing the military, and then as downsizing in general, they still need drill sergeants. They still need people. There's um, the demand for EOD stateside is, you know, less. So that is that's what's going to be happening. Uh, hopefully, after drill sergeant school, after after doing a stint as a drill sergeant that he'll come back into the EOD program. Um, but I, a commanding officer says he was just shocked that one of his guys came down on orders from drill sergeant school. Odd. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I hope that's not the case. Yeah. So I think special operations this time around this downsizing the military will stay pretty good yeah uh, yeah uh this because of the type of limited warfare uh that's going on out there uh, there's a place for special operations in today's world and there's a lot of uh public and congressional support i think for special operations yeah the conventional side of the house is going to suffer yes yeah yeah that's unfortunate I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's all I can think of right now. <laughs> oh, Jack. it's a lot. It's Thank you so much. That was pleasure. quite a bit. And, and like I said, you really were one of the favorite guests of our audience the first time you were on, and, and they were demanding that we do a part two. So uh, this is a real treat for them and a real honor to have you on. Well, thank you, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Yeah, Mike, I mean, you're welcome anytime. Um, If you ever need anything from either of us, absolutely don't hesitate to reach out. We really appreciate you taking, you know, an hour and a half of your time today for us. Yeah, well, I appreciate what you guys are doing and giving a voice to the different, you know, veterans and stuff like that. And this is all history. Absolutely. It's great. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Have a good day. (laughs) Good day to you. (laughs) Take care. Appreciate it. Wow. Sergeant Major Vining, there's just an incredible amount of stories there. Yeah. uh, Yeah, again, I mean, we did a two-part interview, but we're still just scraping the surface. (laughs) As as you can see, you know, there's a lot more. The guy just did a lot. He experienced a lot, and um, I'm sure we could go on. But I I think we kind of covered a the highlights you know yeah we got all the big points in um, absolutely and i think people are going to be fascinated as i was i was actually hearing things for the first time that he was talking about i was like when he was talking about um the plans to assault the saddam's command bunker with like a ranger battalion yep. and i was like what i don't i never heard about any of this and probably no one has so I, I mean unless they were involved in the planning or something like that you know yeah i just yeah. mean for for the audience this stuff sure. is not out there um, 
of course, want to let you guys know there's only one club with uh, gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi survivor and Army Ranger Chris Tonto Peranto, and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision, which was awesome. Crate Club's really stepping it up uh, as 2018 progresses by putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. We saw some of those um, while we were at our team meeting, and they're great. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. We're also working on more digital platforms that are going to be interactive with Crate Club members, so you can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. For your dog owners, we're doing something very similar. Check this out. You're going to love it. Uh, We've just launched Kuna. Uh, There's a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced and all natural. Uh, They not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether you're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you, and your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops premiere show uh, training cell follows former special ops forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, which is at specopschannel.com, and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. And also, as I mentioned, if you're a team room member, Um, along with the annual team room party that we have, joining the chat that we do, commenting on articles with the writers, you'll also get membership to the Spec Ops channel. So that's a real incentive to become a team room member. Um, I have to say, I mean, my favorite part of that interview that I just thought was fascinating was him saying, you know, when I asked what makes someone become an EOD tech, and as a kid doing these like <laughs> science experiments yeah which which today you would definitely be labeled a potential terrorist like that that would not fly today no no it, de- of- it definitely wouldn't fly i uh i interviewed somebody who um his background is in ballistics but he is a, a actually a rocket scientist like for real and um he was telling me a similar story there's a, a junior chemistry kit back when he was a kid and it had a small amount of like black powder in it or something, some sort of powder explosive like that. And he's like, I, I bought a couple of these different chemistry kits and then combined all the powder in it to make a bigger boom. Yeah. And he was like probably like 10 or something like that. And he's like, I, and he blew up his dad's garage with it. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. You just wonder. Those were like, different days. But, you know, the, the Mike Vining of today are we stifling kids that have just weird interests? You know, also they'll label someone who's into just strange stuff as being like autistic or something. And oftentimes these people are geniuses that, that just are doing something that's outside the realm of 
what's accepted in 2018. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of agree. I mean, I wouldn't want kids playing with explosives no. unsupervised, <laughs> but I, I think there's definitely a role for um, for kids to conduct, you know, science experiments with, you know, some adult supervision, uh, you know, even to have kids, you know, uh, learn how to shoot guns and go out on the range and shoot twenty two pistol or rifle, you know, and just just like basic life skills, you know. I yeah, think. I mean, we, we do need future Mike Vinings. Yeah. Oh, we just need future responsible citizens too. And I, I mean, there's a, the gun control debate raging in America and all that. And like, look, you know, we have guns in this country. They're not going away. We have constitutional rights. Um, if guns aren't going to go away, then why? It seems it, it seems like almost like we're responsible. Like if we're going to have guns, we should teach kids about gun safety and things like this. Yeah. Why, why don't we do that? Yeah, and I really think it's so obvious that there is a cultural pro- there is a cultural issue that goes along with it because the fact that in when Mike was growing up, what would that be the nineteen forties, fifties? I guess. Well, let's see. If he joined, uh, he was in Nam in sixty eight. Must have been eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. So. But yeah, so the nineteen fifties, early nineteen yeah. fifties. Um, you know, if kids were able to do this type of thing, uh, if if there was rifle teams in elementary schools and all that type of thing, yet school shootings, for the most part, were non-existent, didn't happen. Uh, like, what has changed today? That's the real question. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so we appreciate you guys listening. If you if you like this episode, all we really ask is please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We like getting that visibility up. It's important. Um, and I guess that's it. Who do we, I actually have to check. Who do we have coming on next episode? It is um, David Raritan, who was actually referred to uh, okay. right by Mike. And it's often said that we don't have enough Air Force guys on. So finally, we'll get an Air Force guy from that era. Yeah. Mike uh, recommended him. Sergeant Major Vining was like, yeah, you should. Yeah, I should you say should Sergeant. I, I've gotten too and, comfortable uh, calling him oh, Mike. Oh, no, he yeah. wants you to. He, 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 he prefers to go by his first name, I think. Um, yeah, they'll be like this. You know, it's funny because you say Sergeant Major Vining, and I, I'm sure I'll get comments of like the uh, civilian on the show doesn't have the respect to. Uh, <laughs> no, I have, I have a ton of respect for for the guy. Really, uh, it, uh, yeah, you know, but he recommended this guest, and so I was like, well, that's a good recommendation. So we got to try to get this guy on. Yeah, I think we'll if he recommends anybody, we'll yeah. have them on, and we have a lot of great um, people coming on in the, in the next few weeks. So uh, that's it. We're out. All right. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.